0: Thanks for listening to Worship Local. Worship Local is our podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Joseph Donafro. In today's podcast, we're going to dig into the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, why do we confess it in our church? How does it provide the universal church with an understanding of Orthodox Christianity? What's in this ancient creed? So whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope
1: this podcast helps you worship local. All right, I am Andrew Self. I'm one of the pastors at Frontier Church. And this afternoon, I am joined by... Joseph Donafrown. And... Cole
0: Daiki and Joseph and I are sharing a microphone, so we've got to like we were one microphone short, so we're gonna like pass it around. So, church, if you hear this, they hear that? Probably not. Hopefully, you didn't to, hear it. Right there we go. If you hear <laughs> if you
1: hear this sort of stuff going on, people's eardrums just blew out. <laughs>
0: it's, it's because yeah. Donna Pro and I are
2: sharing. <laughs> it's because Cole's not
1: gentle. <laughs> yeah, cables and mics are hard for us, apparently. That's yeah, just the, the life of being a you know young church that doesn't have a lot of resources, and we don't have access to our worship space uh, throughout the week. So we, we make do. That's right. But yeah, I'm excited because all three of us are here. Joseph has had to work the past several Tuesdays, so he hasn't been able to join us. Um, but I'm really excited about our, our conversation, guys. Um, we're going to be talking about the Apostles' Creed we confess the apostles creed about once a month in the life of our local church and so yes we we really want to talk about you know obviously what what is the apostles creed why did it come into existence but also how is it a, a pastoral help how does it help us know that we are in step with one another as we are following jesus so i, I want to open up with a quote from from a book it's in the book called uh, he descended to the dead would uh, you recommend this book for the average member or is it too much academia um, it's kind of like in the middle of, I just want something that is challenging, but yeah. something that's not just a ton of Greek and a bunch of stuff like that. I don't know cool. Greek, so so I would recommend it. I know we've got a lot of nerds in our church, um, so I, it, this has been a really helpful. Book it for won me. a theology award
0: from Gospel Coalition, yeah. right?
1: Yeah, it did. It's pretty cool. Yeah, a lot of people have been, you know, who were high up in the Reformed or Evangelical, you know, influencer realm uh, have been recommending this book, and I have found it extremely helpful. Um, but the author of this book, um, he, he talks about, it in the opening chapter, of, of creeds being derivative of Scripture. So this quote, I think, is really helpful. So he, he's just spent some time commenting on and, and quoting a, a theologian um, who is Van Hooser, uh, but he says this, In Van Hooser's term, the Spirit is the playwright, the Bible is the script, And tradition and doctrine are the faithful performances of that script. In this model, then, Scripture is ultimately authoritative via its divine inspiration. And doctrine and tradition are derivatively authoritative as long as they are worked out, performed, and according with the Norma Normans non-normata of Scripture. Don't ask me what that means. I'll have to look it up. (laughs) In this derivative and performative role, doctrine is both subject to scripture and insofar as it is faithful to scripture, a guide for reading scripture. When we say that doctrine or tradition is derivatively authoritative, then we mean that it aids in our grasp of scripture's content Mm -hmm. insofar as it is faithful to scripture's content. That's really helpful for me because I've been known to say, oh, you know, just the, the Bible is my creed. And a lot of people say that, a lot of people who say that, get into some weird territory, but that quote is really helpful for me to know that Hey, we look at these ancient creeds, we look at these confessions of faith, and we believe that they are derivative from scripture, meaning that all of the content in these creeds or these confessions are found explicitly in scripture. So they are good little boxes for us to use to to, um, catechize ourselves and to know that we are all in the same way following Jesus step by step. So that's what we're going to do. That's why we love the Apostles' Creed. We, we believe that the Apostles' Creed is a helpful articulation of, of the triune God, of the local church, and certain things that we believe about each of those pieces. So the Apostles' Creed. When, when did the Apostles' Creed come out? When was it constructed? So uh, we see the Apostles' Creed uh, comes into existence in the fifth century, and it uses a lot of language of the old Roman symbol, uh, which was, I believe, third or fourth century. Um, so we have this document where, where these churches and these pastors they come together and they look at what's in Scripture. They look at who God the Father is, God the Son, and God the Spirit is, and they say, "Hey, we've got to, we've got to." put together a creed so that we know that we are all committed to the same Jesus and we all believe the same thing. Creeds a lot of times come into existence to, to kind of combat uh, a lot of, a lot of heresy or a lot of things that are not a hundred percent accurate and precise in the scriptures that would lead people away from faithfulness to Jesus. And so we have this apostles creed that was put together to, protect the church from heresy, but to keep this, and and also in the same way, uh, construct the church in an orthodox manner so that they could live out the commands of scripture properly. Have you guys ever heard the rumor of the Apostles' Creed being line by line written by each of the 12 apostles? Yeah, it's it's such a well-known
0: creed, and and there's so much great history to it. Um, and it's so like it's so universally confessed among the worldwide church that it's one of those creeds that generates a lot of mythology. <laughs> you know, like it just generates like all these crazy stories around it. So I've heard that. I've also heard the rumor, or I guess the myth, and I don't think there's any historical validity to this. But you guys can you guys can push me on that. But I've heard the rumor of like each line oh, of 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 the twelve apostles each apostle contributed one line to the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. I think that's turned out to be like folklore and um, like demonstrably not true, but it's interesting at least to think about.
1: Yeah, I think there was a couple of uh, early church fathers who uh, made those claims or alluded to them in their letters, but I think around the medieval time, they figured out that that was not 100% airtight. It'd be cool to think about, but... (laughs) Right, like there's
0: some things that are settled about the Apostles' Creed, like... It is the golden standard for orthodox biblical Christianity throughout time. Like, that's been settled and disputed by so many churches and so many smart Christians that that's, like, it's gold standard. It really is. Um, but there's a lot of things that are unsettled about it when it comes to, like, its roots and its and its myths and how, how did this document um, come into existence. So it's just fascinating to think about yeah. as a document. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So before we go completely nerd on this, I'd just like to hear... When was the first time that you guys encountered the Apostles' Creed? I don't know if you remember that time, um, but when was that, and what what kind of stood out? Was it perplexing, or was it something you're like, oh, yeah, that okay. makes sense?
0: Yeah, so because of Donna Fro's charismatic background, I want you to answer
2: this question, dude. <laughs> Do you remember your first encounter with it? I don't even... I don't know. My assumption is... I don't know for sure, but my assumption is um, visiting my my aunt's church that... She went to um, in Montgomery, Alabama, and it was an Episcopalian church at the time um, when I visited. And so my guess is they said it there, or possib- quite possibly at the Presbyterian church. I grew up like going and visiting with friends because my school growing up was predominantly Presbyterian, so... I don't know, that would be my guess. I really don't think we ever quoted it at my church growing up that I know of. Um, we did have a catechism class one time. I don't really remember much about it. It didn't stick with us. Um, but that that would be my guess, going and visiting the Episcopalian church that my aunt went to. so that's my guess. And I and I think the one thing that always stuck out to me that was like what the heck is where they talk about the Holy Catholic Church. The Catholic Church part is like why are we saying that? Like I don't understand. We're not in the Catholic Church right <laughs> <Yeah>. now, so <laughs>
0: So this is great. You guys are going to love this. Um, obviously, I'm Protestant, right? We, I mean, I pastor a Protestant church. Chloe grew up Protestant and Lutheran. And uh, Chloe's told me on a couple different occasions that Chloe's grandmother, who was like devout Lutheran, um, whenever her church, her Lutheran church would confess that, she would, she would stay silent during the Holy Catholic Church <laughs> bar. So we don't need to park here right now in the conversation, but I don't remember my first point of contact with confessing the Apostles' Creed, I do remember my first point of contact with leading the Apostles' Creed at Frontier. So we were still at Woolies, right? I'm pretty sure the first time we confessed it was at Woolies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we were still at Woolies, and we confessed it together. And after that Sunday service, I had three people ask me, are we a Roman Catholic church? (laughs) And two people ask me, did Jesus really descend to hell? And for the sake of clarity, after that, I was like, "We're not confessing this in our church." And I've changed tunes. So that's an interesting conversation, right there. I just yeah. I think that's interesting, though, that that was our first touch point with it at frontier. And the creed, I have been won over by the creed, but it's been it's been a little bit of a, a wrestle,
1: yeah. a wrestling match. Yeah, I think my first encounter was probably I was probably a junior in. Homeschool, high school, and so in the church history portion of my uh, education, that was in there because I, you know, grew up in Southern Baptist churches my entire life, and it may have been like in the back of a hymnal for responsive reading or something, um, but you know, I ne- never was a, a part of a, a church that confessed it frequently or referred to it as a as a point of of doctrine for for agreement. So yeah, whenever we we launched. Frontier Church and you know we decided we were going to be a you know liturgical a confessional church that can that you know corporately on Sundays confessed ancient creeds and you know have this beautiful liturgy that was really my first time of like familiarizing myself with the apostles creed and i think it is those you know those couple of points like you guys just mentioned the you know the catholic church descended to hell like it weirds people out especially Protestants and so we just kind of put it somewhere on the shelf and don't pay attention to it.
2: Yeah. Where did it where did well, we'll probably get into that. But I'm I'm wondering where that came into play because I was just reading the cuz you put it in here like old Roman symbol, so I looked that up and I mean, this is Wikipedia so this could be wrong, but it says it doesn't say Holy Catholic Church in this English translation, it says the Holy Church. Mhm. For the old Roman symbol. So I don't know if that has anything to do with, the, like, at some point it came along that it was the Holy Catholic Church, and that was, like, introduced, obviously, later on, if that's actually accurate. That's mm-hmm. what I'm looking at. So I don't know. that I, I would like to know that. Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: so this is this is interesting that you brought up the, the old Roman symbol. I knew we were going to talk about that in the podcast today but since i had a, an allergic reaction to the first time that we was that the right way to i had an allergic reaction to the first time that we confessed it together <laughs> in a church cuz i just didn't i you know the first year of church planting is crazy and i was like i don't have time to after the service explain this every freaking time that we confess it so since i had that allergic reaction to it i got to give some props to Luke Snowden Snowden <laughs> brought the old Roman symbol to me about six months later or about a year later because it's where the Apostles' Creed is derived from. And the old Roman symbol only says that Jesus descended to the dead, and it doesn't have the word Catholic in it. So it was an easy transition back into this ancient confession while still being able to tiptoe around those conversations. Self, do you remember Do you remember confessing the old Roman symbol? We probably confessed it like four times as a church. Five, maybe.
1: Yeah, yeah, I vaguely remember that. um, Because I think I just, you know, putting the liturgy into uh, our presentation software. Probably remember like, oh, this is familiar, but it's also a little different. So, yeah. And it's, you know, one thing that's interesting about these creeds is that they, they were designed to... Um, be helpful for the church, and so they you know you've got the Apostles' Creed, you've got the Old Roman Symbol, you've got the Nicene Creed, you've got the Athanasian Creed. All have yep, their own yeah. unique purposes. Um, the Apostles' Creed being one of the you know the the earliest versions of, of ecumenical creeds. They were designed to be helpful for for cer- for certain purposes, and so that's what I love about creeds. You know, most yes, <laughs> yeah. know, most uh, theological works usually come about as a reaction to something. They're like. Well, you just said that Jesus uh, only had a divine spirit, not a human spirit as well. So we've got to got to come together, make sure we're all reading the same uh, Bible here, and then put out a statement that protects us from uh, this this particular heresy. Um, right, and yeah. that's so that's what one of the reasons why. Um, we as a local congregation on Sunday mornings, we you know we cycle through four different confessions of faith and creeds. Uh, we we confess those one because it ties us into Christian history. We get mm-hmm. to we get to say we are confessing the same thing this Sunday morning as brothers and sisters did in the seventh century, and that's amazing to think about. Um, but it also protects us from heresy. Like so When we all are, are confessing that we believe in God the Father Almighty, what are we saying together? And we'll, we'll dig into that. But we are mm-hmm. saying, this is who we are as a church. This is what we believe. So, Joseph, I would like for you to well, you go ahead and read through the Apostles' Creed, and then we'll start digging into some of these pieces. Joseph.
2: Joseph. You can Joseph. do it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen.
1: All right, guys, so what we're going to do today is we're going to chop this bad boy in half, um, and we're going to cover the Apostles' Creed over the, the this episode and next week's episode. So we're going to start uh, from I believe in God the Father Almighty, and then we are going to end our time today on the third day He rose again. So we're not going to get it all out of our system today, um, but but next week we'll we'll finish it out. And so we what we want to do with this uh, for those of you who are listening is we want to go through this kind of line by line. Um, a lot of this content is not going to be new to you. Um, we've preached on many of these, um, especially like where we find our our church at right now. We've you know, we did Advent, so we talked about Jesus and the incarnation. We went through Lent. We went through um, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So we've covered a lot of this content already. So we're not gonna we're not gonna go through all of this in depth, um, but we're gonna pick one part to nerd out on. And if you just listen to Joseph so beautifully read this creed, you're probably gonna know what part we're gonna nerd out on.
0: Delightful, Joseph. Delightful. <laughs> Delightful. You did great, man.
1: Uh, so, guys. I believe. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Where, where do we find this in Scripture? There's probably several places that we can find this in Scripture, but where is one place that we can find this in Scripture? And why is this important for us to confess as a church?
0: So, um, I mean, like one of the best places that we find it in Scripture is uh, the, the Lord's Prayer. Right? Jesus actually demonstrates what it means mm-hmm. to pray to God as Father. But also, we see this in in Matthew five, verse forty-five. He says, um, "Love your enemies, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven." So
1: this line is—I mean, it's all over the Scriptures. Yeah, I mean, you've got all—all these other, you know, uh, ancient mythologies and ancient beliefs where they said, you know, this God is our Father. Like we are descendants of this one. We see explicitly with uh, Roman with the Roman emperor who who said, "Yeah, my my father is God, and now I am God as well." So we see this. So this is, a, gosh, what a load, man! What a what a dingus! Yeah, um, this is important for us as a church. We believe that God the fa- God is our Father. So we believe that that's why we call it, you know one member of the Trinity, God the Father. From Him, all things come into existence. We find yeah. ourselves yeah. in existence because He has fathered us. Physically, but also also spiritually. We are made sons and daughters of God the Father. Right. We're brought into his family. We're adopted into his family. So when we think about our identity as Christians, we we can say we are us we I'm a son of God or I, I'm a daughter of God. So that's important for us. we I, I love that because it breeds this familial language where we, we look at ourselves not just as people who believe the same thing, but we are related to one another in Christ.
0: Yeah, I know we got to blast through these to keep this punctual. Um Let me let me just quote Athanasius on this, and I'd like to see what you guys think. So, Athanasius, when talking about um when talking about the Apostles' Creed and God as Father, he says, "Quote: Father designates neither the substance nor the activity, but the relationship which holds good between the Father and the Son." Mm. Athanasius goes on to say. Every bodily thought must be shunned in these matters. So what he's saying is God is not father in substance, but in relationship. Mm -hmm. We should not think of God as gendered.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you guys agree? Yeah. Great. Yeah. I found that helpful. Yeah, no, that is helpful. Um, Because yeah, that can, based on how you interpret that, it can lead you to some weird ways where you uh, ascribe... Yeah, anyway, we, can't, we don't have time for that, but, but no, it is helpful. Yeah, God is, our God is spirit, so anyway. All right, so we believe in God the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Where do we see that That God is the creator of heaven and earth? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning,
0: God created the heavens and the earth. That's like a straight one-to-one ratio right there. Boom,
1: that one was easy. Yeah, we, we believe that he created the heaven and earth. He is the author of, of creation, all right, we believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Now, this is one that is really important for Christians to to believe in and to and to hold fast to, because a lot of heresies have come um, have come into existence that explicitly deny this. So, for Christians to stay in orthodoxy, we have to believe this line. What are some areas that we see this in Scripture, guys? All over. All
0: over the New Testament. Um, let's go. Matthew three seventeen.
1: <laughs> just in the face of the microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased.
1: Yep, that's a good one. Obviously, John three mm-hmm. sixteen, for God so loved the world that he sent yep. his one and only his one and only son. Yep, yep. So it's all over scripture in that one. Um, but that's an important one for us to believe that, that Jesus it, Christ is God's only son, his unique son. Um, because there are people who believe that you can get into some weird anti-Trinitarian areas if you, if we don't hold fast to this, or mm-hmm. when we believe mm-hmm. that Jesus was just some dude, some prophet that God sent.
0: Yeah. 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 And when we confess that Jesus is God's only son, that's not to say that Jesus has a starting point. Mm-hmm. He's co-eternal with the father but in relationship with the father he he is
1: the son. Mhm. So yeah, when we see in Romans where, you know, we are because we receive the spirit of adoption as sons. So does that mean that we have this uh co-eternal uh status with alongside Christ? No, that doesn't mean that, but um it means that Jesus is this co-eternal son of God, his unique son. So we are made sons of God and daughters of God, and we are given Christ's account of righteousness, but we are brought in into God's family. So we can, we can look at Jesus in one way and see that he is our older brother, but he is God's one and only unique son.
0: Yeah, like another way to think of this is, this is ancient language. Um, it still holds true in, in the modern world, but in the ancient world, the son in relationship to the Father, was the one who would inherit all that belonged to the Father. And so when you think about um, when you think about an ancient worldview, like the Tower of Babel and the world being disinherited from God the Father and given over to powers and principalities, when God re-inherits those people, He's going to give that to His Son. So in other words, it's, it's a way of saying that Jesus is going to
2: inherit and rule and reign over the world. Mm-hmm. Would, it, would adoption also play into that, maybe? Like, we're adopted by, like, we're, you know what I mean? Like, he is God's son, we we're adopted, and we're, like, grafted in. Mm-hmm. Does that also kind of have a play into, like, the inheritance? Like, does that make sense? Yes. I think I
1: know what you're talking about. Like, you see Israel being called God's son, so that his... Israel as a people group are unique, and God uses His Son Israel to reclaim the nations. And so we see God, um, God the Son, Jesus, being God's unique Son who is co eternal with Him, who He is using also to reclaim the nations, to bring all people under submission to mm-hmm. to Jesus' rule and reign.
0: Yeah, you nailed it. You like you really did nail it there. So when when the scriptures talk about, and I think this is important to know, when the scriptures talk about us being sons and daughters of God. A lot of modern um, preachers will say, Oh, like, look at this emotional relationship you have with your daddy. You crawl up onto his lap and yada, yada, yada. And there's definitely significance there emotionally. But that's not the primary thing it was supposed to convey. The primary thing that's supposed to convey that we are sons and daughters of God is what you're saying, Joseph, that we are going to inherit the world, inherit new creation, and we will rule and reign alongside of Jesus mm-hmm. in the new creation. Yeah. So totally. That's what, definitely what they're getting at with adoption
1: in the New Testament. Yeah, there's a, a status change. You go from having one last name to having a new last name, and you can see people in our church or yeah. that you know who've adopted people who've adopted children, and they, they have this status change where they're taken from, you know, from an orphanage or from parents who, who didn't want them, and they are brought into this new family and are given the inheritance of the, of the father mm-hmm. in the same way that they're, they give the same status and the same inheritance to their adopted child just as they do with their blood child. All right, let's move along here. Um, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit? Where do we see this in Scripture? Luke one thirty five
0: and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God.
1: Hmm. Why is this significant for us to think about and to confess? We're giving you the mic, yeah, I know. charismatic person. Um, <laughs> because that,
2: I mean, I feel like that the Holy Spirit was given in that moment and then as when he ascended into heaven after he was crucified and buried, like the Holy Spirit was left with us. So that's, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. In my head, that's that's saying like a human, God, was given the Holy Spirit to live and walk among us and then he left that with us so that we would be with him forever. I mean, that's that's just like, the gift now on on earth and then in the future when we are with him in paradise like that that i don't know in my head it makes sense it makes sense that like he's with us now and he will be with us in in the days to come when we're with him in heaven so it's just like reminding us that he's with us yeah and i love i
0: love the language that luke Uses so when you think about um, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, um, you like Luke uses language that echoes back to Genesis. Mm-hmm. So in Genesis, um, you see the Spirit of God hovering over the primordial depths, and then it's the Spirit of God that brings the old creation into being. And so, in that same way, you should think of the Holy Spirit like overshadowing or hovering over the womb of mary Mm -hmm. and so you're clued into oh what's happening here oh the holy spirit is about to do a work that's going to be the first fruits of new creation so what what whatever is gonna come out of mary whoever is coming out of mary whatever this is this is the first piece of new creation that's being released into the old creation and it's jesus
1: this is awesome, yeah. bro. I'm trying to find a quote in this book that he talks about, yeah, the spirit hovering over the yeah. you know the amniotic fluid in, in Mary's womb. And yeah, <gasps> amniotic I'll, fluid? I'm gonna have to find it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, but yeah, it, it it also, so like we see um, in this creed with that line, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the divinity of Christ. So this is where we can reject that Christ was only man, but he was he was divine. He was God in the flesh. So Word, so we there's the divinity of Christ. The next line gives us the humanity of Christ as well. So born of the Virgin Mary. We find that one um, down just a little bit past that text that we just looked at in Luke. So we'll hop down to Luke 2, 7. Luke 2, 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Why is this important for us, guys?
0: Um well for, I mean first because the, the scriptures teach it. So here's Millard Erickson <laughs> on this, right? So So Millard Erickson he says, quote, if we do not hold to the virgin birth despite the fact that the Bible asserts it, then we have compromised the authority of the Bible. And there's no principle, there is in principle no reason why we should hold to its other teachings. Um so that's like a really simple answer, like, well, the scriptures teach it and we believe in the authority of the scriptures. Um but it's also another way of simply asserting the fact that God became man. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Ooh. That determines whether or not I believe that God actually came into the world and believed the incarnation. Yeah.
1: So we see this 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 holistic picture of of Jesus being having a divine spirit, but he was not just a spirit. He took on flesh. So he entered into human history as a human to fulfill the commands of God that humanity continually screwed up over and over and over again. This is, you got something? Uh, yeah, it's
0: way off track. Do yeah. you guys want to go? Like, we don't have to have this conversation because I don't know anything about it, but I remember a friend in college saying, um, I remember a college and or I remember a friend in college, we were talking about total depravity and he was like, yes, sin um, and a sinful nature is spread via the seed of man, and so that's why we need to believe in the virgin birth because that believe, that means that Jesus was able to take on the form of man without the sinful nature of man. I don't know if that's true. Like, does the biblical text teach that that it's it's the
1: sperm that passes
0: on sinful nature from one man to the next? Is that is that goofy? That's kind of goofy, right?
1: I've heard that, but I've never like dedicated much study to it. You know, I think that's just that ancient worldview of yeah. things coming from the man. Like you, you know, you oh, inherit right. your father's name. So right. I think it's just part of that whole that whole worldview. But it is, I mean, it, yeah. And this is where a lot of uh, a lot of people will go down a lot of rabbit trails <laughs> with mm-hmm. that with that thing. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I think that mindset comes from R- Romans five. You know, from one man came sin and death, Adam, and from another man comes life. Um, and, and wholeness, sure, Jesus, yeah. so Jesus being the new Adam. So I, I think people take that and they're like, oh yeah, it's, you know, this, the seed is the, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe that was stupid of me to say, but no, the think, seed is
1: a big deal in the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, you have a rival seed, You have like so it's yeah, really yeah. important to, to, to think about that. But yeah, we have Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and Mary gives birth to this baby who is God incarnate. So we see the the divinity and the humanity of Christ which is very important um, because for Jesus in order for Jesus to be the, a pleasing and perfect sacrifice to God he had to be fully he had to be man to, to do that but he was a perfect man He was a unique man because he was God in the flesh mm-hmm. all right so here we have this this Jesus who, whom we believe in what's the, what's the line next line say Well it says this Jesus was crucified oh sorry. Uh, He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is that important?
0: Yeah, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, So this comes from like all the Gospels, but here, you know, one example of it is John 19, um, verse 16, they want Jesus to be crucified, right? And And they're like, we have no king besides Caesar. And so verse 16 says, so Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. This is, I, I really like that this is in the creed. I'd like to hear from you guys about what you think the significance of this is.
1: What do you think, Joseph? Pilate,
0: Pontius Pilate, this little puppet ruler,
2: gets to be in the Apostles' Creed. I just think that's significant. I do, too. Well, it's in all four Gospels, right? I mean, it's in every one. He's quoted. Do you think it's like a timeline moment, like, so you know when this is happening like it's under his rule. Like this is when this is actually happening. Over the, I mean, I don't know. That seems the most obvious to me. Like this is a time, like the second century or whatever it is. I don't remember what actually time frame it is, but just like a a time stamp so we know when this is going
1: on. Yeah, I think that could, yeah, very much be the case. And it's interesting whenever you look at, know. Um, yeah. you know, God's son, His people, Israel, go His you know, these Hebrews that go into slavery in Egypt, but there's no specific names attributed to the pharaohs. We just see Pharaoh, Pharaoh, two different pharaohs, but we don't get their unique names. So it's really interesting that God's firstborn son, Jesus, goes into, you know, he comes down to humanity, and he is about to be murdered by another ruler, mm-hmm. and but his name is mentioned. And his wife is also, not in the creed, his wife's not yeah. mentioned, but his wife's mentioned in the gospel. So, yeah, do you have any... Do you have any theories or thoughts on that, Cole?
0: I have a lot of thoughts. I think... Fro, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I like what you said. This, so this is just one really simple line from the book on the Apostles' Creed by Ben Myers that echoes what you said. Um, here's, here's, what he, here's what he says. Um, quote, The name of Pontius Pilate is a historical anchor it prevents us from turning the christian faith into a set of general truths about the world and it reminds us that the gospel is not an idea but a fact. Mm-hmm. so i like that like it locates it in time in space in reality this is this is this did not take place in a c.s. lewis myth right this took place under a real king under a real ruler so i like the historical part about it i wonder also if there's some spiritual warfare significance to this also. It was, it was necessary that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is to say that he suffered underneath the rule and reign of the Roman Empire, because there is some dark spirituality that's going on with the rule and reign of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you, when you look at Paul's church planting, and his missionary endeavors, it seems like he was driven by two things. I'm not let's not explain this because I wanna I wanna preach on this this Sunday. <laughs> One thing was um, there's a spiritual plan to it. it when you look at the table of the nations, all the way back in Genesis and the Tower of Babel being scattered. Paul's church planting strategy corresponds with that. Mm-hmm. So he sees church planting as reclaiming the nations to Jesus. But there's also another way of, of looking at Paul's missionary adventures, and they're not. it's not at odds with what I just said. Um, Paul's church planting strategy, if you look at it on a map, it's almost like looking at a knife plunging into the heart of Caesar's rule and reign in the ancient world. So Paul goes after the Roman Empire. He goes to the main centers where the the Roman cult is being worshipped and spread. And that's where Paul wants to go to war with the gospel of Jesus. So it's necessary that Jesus suffered underneath Pontius Pilate because Jesus was going to go to war with and overthrow the demonic powers behind this Mm. ruler.
1: I'm excited for this. Right? Yeah, Yeah, I mean I, I think
0: that's I that's part of why I think that's in there.
1: Yeah, and, and then also one thing I think of is, you know, being a, you know, an early church Christian, and knowing that I'm suffering at the hands of this, you know, of a ruler of a foreign kingdom, um, or my own kingdom, that I can think about Jesus suffering at the hands of a of a, of a wicked ruler, and so you know, the suffering they were encountered, they could look at Jesus and be like he he. He suffered under this ruler who, has a, who had a name and who had a face, yeah. just like the ruler who I'm suffering under has a name and has a faith. So I, maybe that could bring a point of comfort. I don't know. That's another one. That's one of my theories. Mm-hmm. All right, so yeah. he suffered under Pontius Pilate. What did that suffering bring forth? Well, he was crucified, died, and was buried. You guys are going to have a hard time finding this in the scriptures, aren't you? Where do we see Christ being crucified, died, and buried?
0: You want to go first, Dr. Pharrell? Um 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried,
1: and that he was raised on the third day. I was going to use that one later. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But I, I, I love that text because it's, You know, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, like Jesus died in accordance with what had already been written. So these Old Testament prophecies that we have about the Messiah coming, what Jesus did in his death and his burial, um, it was not something that was new or it wasn't a new thought necessarily. Like when people encounter the risen Christ, they're like, oh, man, yeah, we, we grew up meditating on some of these passages that talk about this Messiah who would come and who would suffer and who would disrupt the government, who would be oppressed by the government, but would not be contained um, by death. So that, that's why I love that passage and this line here in the Apostles' Creed. We can find that, <clears throat> find that easily in the scriptures. But he didn't stay dead. So the next line is, um, he descended into, into hell. All right, this is the the one that people trip up on the most, I, I think. And wh- so, one one valid reason is that this was a later edition in the Apostles' Creed. There's a lot of. Do you know how late it was? Do you? I want to say sixth century, possibly. Okay, sixth so century, I believe. A hundred. Well, I mean
0: fifty years afterwards. Is
1: that? Do I have my timeline right? Let me give a precise because this is really important um, because. With it being a later edition, a lot of people say it was a later edition, and therefore we can delete it and we don't have to confess it. We can pull sure, a sure, Frontier yeah. Church and <laughs> and get rid of that line pull for a while. Pull the Frontier Church, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, totally. And um, because they say, well, this isn't taught by Scripture. Now, this this one, yes, is not. Not as explicit as some people would like for it to be, if we we're going to keep it in the Apostles' Creed. But this is something, and we touched on this a little bit last on our last podcast. But this is a part of an over overarching uh, narrative that we see in the scriptures about these Christ types descending into into Sheol, these Christ types descending into the place of the dead. Um, why did he do? Why did they? Why did? Why did they, you know, these Christ types have to descend? So that they could be ascended, to show that, that death does not have control over God's Son or God's people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think this is one is really important. So what are, some, what are some passages that we can see this being communicated in, in the Scriptures? Because this is a, a doctrine of Christ's descent, of Him descending into hell and defeating death and proclaiming victory over death. For God's people has become really near and dear to my heart. Um, and I, I don't want people to just get caught up on this weird language and say, ah, that's, I don't see that in the Bible, but it, it is in the Bible. Um, so where do we see this, guys, in the scriptures?
0: Yeah, so I've got one in mind. Um, let me just, can I just hear, when we think through what Jesus was accomplishing in categorical terminology, here's the mistake that we make, and this is what I think trips people up. And you can You guys can push back on this, but the reason why a lot of modern Christians reject the descent into hell is because they apply the wrong theological category to it. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, this is about atoning for sin and suffering underneath the wrath of God. It's not. He accomplishes that on the cross. That's why Jesus says, it is finished. So it's not a matter of atonement to use Mm -hmm. theological categorical language. To continue to use theological categorical language... It is a matter of Christus victor, Mm -hmm. which is a theological term for Jesus's victory over the powers. So though Jesus has atoned for sin fully on the cross in his conscious suffering, his descent into hell is about spiritual warfare and overthrowing the enemy. So we see this in like 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. So, it's one place that we see it in the yeah. New Testament.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that you clarified that, because we hear that word hell as 21st century Christians, and we hear the, the place of eternal torment.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. So we think, oh, Jesus for three days went and was like tormented by the flames of hell. Hell, no. He went into hell and kicked
1: butt. Is what he did. Yeah, and that <clears throat> that thought of hell uh, only being a place of eternal torment that really in Christ ascending in there and believing that Christ had to experience that. So Calvin was a a big deviation from from previous thought. Calvin believed that Christ did descend to help to, to experience humiliation and to experience pain on behalf of the believer. Calvin was very unique. The, the early church fathers did not believe that. The churches did not believe that he went and experienced pain, he, but he descended into hell not to provide a second chance at salvation, because that's a lot of uh, around the medieval time you had that as well, where Christ descends to hell to give people a second chance. That's not what he was doing. He descended to hell to proclaim victory and to lead the Old Testament believers. So this is where, where this is really unique. Um, the, the ancient worldview of, of, the, of the cosmos would be you have this flat earth, and then you have the earth being supported by these pillars, and under the earth is, is the afterlife, the place of the dead. And there's a righteous compartment of the afterlife, and there's an unrighteous compartment of the afterlife. Christ did not descend into the unrighteous part and experience you know, separation and to experience uh, punishment um, in the afterlife. What Christ does is he descends into the, the place of the dead, and he proclaims victory, and he leads the Old Testament saints out of that place to be in, in Christ's presence and to be in paradise. That's why Jesus can say, today you'll be with me in paradise, and then also descend to hell. He goes to hell to to preach the gospel, saying, hey, uh, you guys thought you were gonna win, you evil spirits, but you don't. I'm, I'm taking these people out here. They're gonna be in my presence, and so because Christ did that, when you and I, uh, whenever we come to the end of our lives uh, before new creation, we get to be with God. As you know, we're, our spirits and our bodies are separated, but we get to be in Christ's presence because of what Christ did. He, on behalf of the believer, he goes in and and you know he gives us not only comfort in death but comfort in the afterlife and the intermediate state. Um, and so that's why I think this is so important for us to think and, and to, to reject what people say. We need to delete this from the Apostles' Creed because there's so much power in this. The Christus Victor piece, I think, is so, so important that Jesus is so powerful and so good and so mighty that he can die and go to the afterlife and say, hey, you guys got, got nothing on me. There's beautiful ancient Christian art um, of of Jesus descending into the afterlife and leading out Adam and leading out Eve from the you know, separation um, from God. And so it's this, you know, do I think that God, that Jesus descended and literally led Adam and Eve by hand? No, because they're disembodied spirits. But it's this beautiful image of him undoing what had been done through death and sin. That's so, so powerful. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think it works beautifully within the literary framework of the Apostles' Creed, um, that it's so closely connected with the suffering under Pontius Pilate. Because mm-hmm. the same dark spirit that was behind Pilate and put Jesus to death on the cross is the same dark spirit who faced Jesus face-to-face in
1: hell mm-hmm. and lost authority
0: and dominion to Jesus.
1: Yes, and so this this line was added later into the Apostles' Creed, not not just to be like, hey, we just developed this new theology. Um, they developed to bring clarification, because in an ancient mind, you being buried and put into the ground was, oh, yeah, his soul has departed his body and has gone into the place of the dead. Um, there, there began to—this heresy began to uh, start to, to grow, and it was called Apollinarianism, which is Jesus only had a divine spirit. He did not have a human spirit. But that falls apart because if Jesus were to enter into the human condition totally as a divine—as uh, the Son of God, for him to fully experience um, humanity, he had to live— he had to die. He had to go into the, the place of the dead, and then he had to be resurrected. So this whole um, holistic view of of Christ's divinity and also humanity um, we will fall into heresy if we don't believe these things. Where we have to believe that Jesus had a a human and a divine spirit for us to for our the, for our salvation to be intact. Um, so that that was why that that uh, line was added into the Apostles' Creed.
0: So here's Piper on this. Piper says, quote, There is no textual basis in the New Testament for claiming that between Good Friday and Easter, Christ was preaching to souls imprisoned in hell or Hades. For these and other reasons, it seems best to me to omit from the Apostles' Creed the clause he descended into hell. What'd you say to Piper? Piper disagrees with us.
1: Oh, Johnny.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'd say there there is a textual basis. Yeah, <laughs> we just, i mean, we just went over it.
1: Yeah, you know, I, when, I don't I can't remember when he quoted that because um, I feel like I've read something more recent from Piper where he seems to counter his opinion on that. But I could be—I could be wrong on that. Hmm. Okay, cool. I meant to—I meant to look that up because I—I I figured one of us would probably bring up the that Piper quote. Um, Wayne Grudem is like the big leader of so they. They call this uh, debate the descendant or delete it debate. So, so there's people on big Christian thinkers and influencers. Wait, what was it? Descended or deleted? Yeah, descended or deleted. <laughs> um, but I think it is because of that, especially in the Reformed community, we hold Calvin in such high esteem The where Calvin says this thing, and you're like, oh, Calvin, I agree with you on 99% of things, but Christ couldn't have been tormented in the afterlife. Because he was, you know, perfect and righteous, and he received all the punishment and wrath of God on the cross, so he couldn't. And so people look back at Calvin and they're like, "No, that's wrong." And so we just get rid of this because that didn't actually happen. But it's what is what what is talking what what is the Apostles' Creed talking about when it says he descended to hell? It was it's the afterlife. It's not to this place of eternal conscious torment. Um, and there's yeah, there's, there's lots of uh, lots of debates about this because it is such a Uh, visceral, in our minds, this visceral statement of oh, descended to hell? I've been told my whole life I don't want to go to hell. Um, Yeah. Hmm. Um, But yeah, this book, He Descended to the Dead, is a really helpful book. It's entirely dedicated to to this thought. But um, I, I want Frontier to know that Jesus descended to the place of the dead on your behalf and conquered death, conquered sin, and he stole the keys to the afterlife from the Satan, and he is the ruler and master of of life, of death, and of new mm-hmm. creation. Yeah. All right, so well, let's end it here. On the third day, he rose again. We just spent a good bit of time a couple of weeks ago talking about this. Where do we see this in Scripture that on the third day Jesus rose again?
2: John twenty eleven
1: through eighteen. Gotta get there. I'm
2: almost there. <laughs> But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, and on, oh, excuse me, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus. Jesus said to her, "'Woman, why are you weeping? "'Whom are you seeking?' "'Supposing him to be the gardener,' she said to him, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, "'tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away.' "'Jesus said to her, "'Mary,' she turned and said to him "'in Aramaic, Rabbani,' which means teacher. "'Jesus said to her, "'Do not cling to me, "'for I have not yet ascended to the Father. "'But go to my brothers and say to them, "'I am ascending to my Father,' And your, and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went out and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said these things to her. Yes. Yes. I do find it interesting. Is it actually three days? Like, in my, I don't know, I was reading something on here and the guy was supposing that there was... Multiple Sabbaths during this week, and so he would have died. I know, I know. I'm I'm just throwing this out there. I just wonder, (laughs) was it actually three days?
1: (laughs) Died on Friday, was put in the ground. Saturday, which so this book is like a theology of Holy Saturday that I've been Uh referring to. So he's in the afterlife. Friday after he's crucified on Saturday and on the third day he's risen okay. again. That makes sense. Yeah. So, so
2: this guy's supposing that it's like three full days. Yes. Yeah, so you and got that's what I was death on like, the afternoon
1: weird. of Friday. You've got death all day Saturday and right at the rise of the sun on Sunday you got.
0: Yeah, I don't know what that dude was smoking. Yeah. Well, Two Sabbaths. No. Nah. In one week. No. Nah, this nah bro. Read your Bible. <laughs> 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 Tell this guy that.
1: Very hmm. But yeah. I'd have, I need more time to look at it. Yeah. So we're a church big on resurrection theology. Yeah. We're a church big on new creation. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We do a new creation Sunday every year. Yeah. You like, know uh, f-
1: right after right after Christmas. We hold fast to this because, as Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, and if there is no resurrection for us who are in Christ, then we are the dumbest people, and we deserve the most pity uh, because we're devoting our lives to nothingness. If Christ came and stayed dead, we have no hope. But we believe that Christ did rise again on the third day, and so because of that, we do have hope. Well, guys, I want to leave us with this la- with this quote from Al Mohler, uh, because this is one of the reasons why we love creeds, why we love confessions, because um, in this day and age, there's uh, lots of flavors of Christianity that actually aren't Christianity, and we want Frontier to be a historical when we think about Christianity, we want to be a historically Christian church. We want to be in step with those who have gone before us, who have given their very lives for King Jesus and for the spreading of the gospel. Al Mohler says this truth protects us from the errors that plague so many churches: that place of that place an unbiblical emphasis on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit becomes the center of their faith. The Spirit consumes their thoughts as they try to arouse manifest... Dude, I read the wrong quote. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you were in the, you are doing the wrong one. I was yeah. like, "Where's this going?" <laughs> oh man.
1: Yeah. Anyway, gosh, I really screwed that one up, guys. That was great. That was great. <laughs> anyway, I'll read the other one later. Um, but we believe that this this creed, this first part of the creed, that keeps us in in step with with Orthodox Christianity, and we want to be a church that withstands the tests of christian fads and and different points of emphasis. The, the apostles creed gives us a uh, a statement of christ's identity uh, that he's a part of the trinity and so when we go and we baptize people in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit we can look at the apostles creed and see trinitarian theology here um and so we're going to focus on the the last part of the apostles creed next episode but until then we hope this podcast helps you worship local